from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Washington Post. This is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, February 11th. Today, Michael Cohen's path to Donald Trump, a preventable measles outbreak in the Pacific Northwest, and China's leftover women. Michael Cohen. Donald Trump's former lawyer. The fixer. The guy who paid adult film actress Stormy Daniels hush money. A central figure in Robert Mueller's investigation into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia. Perhaps the most public person to flip on Trump. He's been in the news a lot. Cohen said he made payoffs to women during the 2016 election at the direction of the president. This is a guy who sort of knows where all the bodies are buried. Cohen at his sentencing hearing in December said that his blind loyalty to Trump led him to cover up the president's, quote, dirty deeds. He's been written about a lot. Paul Schwartzman is a reporter for The Post. He recently finished reporting a profile about Michael Cohen, and I asked him what it was like to get that assignment. Terrifying. <laughs> Completely terrifying. But, like, what what did he want to know about Michael Cohen? What Anything you... that was new. <laughs> hey, Michael! Michael! I read what had been written about him, and virtually all of it dealt with Russia investigations, Stormy Daniels. But what you didn't have was, like, people talking about him. Like, who is the guy? What's the guy about? As Paul started interviewing people about Michael Cohen, former business partners, friends, family members, he heard over and over again about two Michaels. One being, like, this guy who is essentially selfless, like, on steroids. If you want to get to a restaurant that he knows about, he'll call up and make the reservation for you because he knows the manager of the restaurant. If you need a lawyer, he'll call the lawyer, you know, or the doctor. He's just, in one sense, it's selfless, but in the other sense, it's also a way to show, hey, I can do this for you. I'm somebody who can make stuff happen for you. So that was the first Michael, the selfless fixer. Then there was the other Michael. He has an incredible temper. He screams at people, and he's just sort of off the charts with his rage. That's a Michael that came out, I think, when uh, he yelled at this Daily Beast reporter who was going to report on President Trump's first wife's claim of rape. So I'm warning you, very likely, because what I'm going to do to you is going to be disgusting. Do you understand me? That, you know, he was threatening him, basically, if he put that into print. What was Michael Cohen's upbringing like? He grew up in, in Lawrence, just over the city line in Long Island. It's his father's a surgeon who's described himself as a Holocaust survivor, and his mom was a nurse. They're both retired now. He went to this Woodmere Academy, which is a small private school right there. It's somewhat exclusive, and this town was you know, pretty prosperous. It's all lawyers and doctors, probably many of them commuting into the city. One of his schoolmates told me that the parking lot at the school resembled a foreign car dealership because so many kids drove imports. I don't know what Michael was driving at that point, but at later points he was driving a Porsche, like in college, a Jaguar that his uncle gave him. So he had an early interest in sort of luxury. 
One of the most formative figures in Cohen's early life was his uncle, Morty. Well, his uncle's like this hugely colorful guy. And I believe that he's sort of the early version of Trump in Michael's life. And he was a big influence on him. I know that for sure because, you know, I got Michael Cohen's cell phone and I would text him, you know, in addition to formally asking him to sit down, which he said no to, I then would text him with little bits that I'd pick up here and there to try to lure him in, and he wasn't really biting. But when I told him in a text that I had seen his Uncle Morty, he wrote back that he was more than an uncle to him. He's like a brother. So... That was helpful. I, I, I believe that he was probably some kind of mentor. So Morty Levine operated a uh, weight loss camp in the Catskills. And he was a weight loss guru or a self-styled weight loss guru in the 70s and the 80s. And he would, he would do these advertisements like, you know, in Ebony or Jet Magazine or like in the Philadelphia newspapers, you know. And the ad said, meet Dr. Morton W. Levine, your weapon against fat. Exclamation point. So Michael Cohen worked at this weight loss camp that was owned by his uncle. And this uncle also owned a country club in Brooklyn and real estate and restaurants. And he was also, what I love about Morty is Morty has a very high opinion of himself and will tell you. Morty of himself says, I was somebody to emulate. I was handsome. I was smart. I had money. I had nice cars. You know, what's not to like, right? So, and that's to me, is very Trumpian. By the time Michael Cohen leaves home, he's ready to prove himself. He goes to college and then law school. He becomes a personal injury lawyer and gets involved in all sorts of schemes to make a lot of money, like the taxi medallion business. And he starts buying up real estate. I think the idea that he, that Trump made him in some ways, that's not really true. I mean, he was already a practicing lawyer. He was buying real estate. He was investing in various ventures. So he was making money before he gets to Donald Trump. But the money wasn't the only thing that Cohen was interested in. He also wanted some kind of platform. In 2003, without any experience in politics, he ran for city council in New York. He ran against Eva Moskowitz, a charter school advocate, and he gets creamed. And I spoke to people who worked on the campaign. They said that he was sort of an unpracticed politician. What he wanted to do during the whole campaign was just beat up Eva Moskowitz, just campaign very negatively against her. And they told him, you know, you got to like present your platform or what are your issues. And he, he had no patience for that. He just wanted to bludgeon her <laughs> rhetorically and put out negative ads. Anyway, he ends up losing by more than 40%. But Cohen finds other avenues to get close to power. He ends up owning a condo in Trump World Tower at the same time that the building's condo board is trying to take Trump's name off the building. And Michael became one of Trump's advocates in the building to keep the name on and, you know, maneuver to overthrow the board, not alone, but with other people. So that the Trump name would stay on the building. And, and that, yeah, and Trump would be in control. And it was like the next year that Trump offered him this job as an executive vice president in the Trump organization. And that was Michael Cohen's in to the Trump world. Like, why do people want to work for Trump? He doesn't treat them particularly well. You know, Trump 
is a brand. You tell people that you work for Trump, but you go to parties and you say you work for Donald Trump or you talk, you know, people think that you're like something. It's like your hood ornament, especially at that time. He was controversial in New York, but a lot of people liked him. And uh, so what's so bad? And what is Michael Cohen doing for Trump at this time on a day to day basis? Like, what does his job look like? One of his things was to carry messages. I interviewed this guy, Tom Allen, who uh, was the editor or the owner of Avenue Magazine. And he gets a call from Michael in 2012. And, you know, it's like, Mr. Trump is very upset with you because, you know, Trump was left off Avenue's list of 200 most influential New Yorkers. And Melania was not among the 25, you know, sexiest New Yorkers. So Trump was very upset and asked Michael to make a phone call. And I think that's a lot of what Michael did. Like, you know, this idea that he was the fixer, that's what you do. You go fix something. So like, you know, soon enough, Tom Allen was in in Trump's office and they were working it out. Cohen's job turned more explicitly political in the fall of 2013, when a group of Republican strategists started courting Donald Trump, trying to get him to run for office, not as president, but as governor of New York. There were a series of meetings, and after each one, this political strategist, Michael Caputo, would go with Cohen to his office to schedule the next meeting. And so after the meetings, Caputo would go with Cohen to Cohen's office in the Trump Tower to kind of strategize for the next meeting, like who's going to be invited, what do we have to do, blah, blah, blah. And at some point, Cohen would just start talking about himself. Like Cohen would say, you know, I really want to run for mayor. I think I could run for mayor. I think that I have the ideas and I know the city. At one point, it became, I want to run for lieutenant governor, you know, on the Trump ticket. So Caputo's listening to this, and each time it comes up, he's like, "Uh uh-huh, that's, you know, great, that sounds good. But what Caputo's thinking is like, you know, the guy's like out of his mind. He has no chance. But he wouldn't really just tell him that because Michael Cohen was the gatekeeper to these meetings. Do you have a sense that as Cohen is thinking about Donald Trump's political future, that he kind of saw that as an avenue for him to pursue his own political ambitions? I mean, that's what it seems like. He was like, you know, linking himself to Trump in that way. So he felt that Governor Trump made Mayor Cohen a possibility. It's a recurring theme that comes back. So obviously Michael Cohen is there with Trump when Trump runs for president and then is successful in becoming president. And What happens to Cohen after that? Well, I talked to Rudy Giuliani, who said that as the campaign went along, Cohen was marginalized. It was sort of like pushed to the edges. You know, he was an early surrogate for Trump. But the campaign managers, Manafort, Lewandowski, and Kellyanne Conway, apparently they never agreed on anything, is what I'm told. But the one thing they agreed on was that Michael Cohen should not be at the center of the campaign, that As Giuliani said, like, every time they put him on TV, it was like listening to a gangster speak on behalf of Trump. And so nobody wanted him around. So he was pushed to the edges. And when Trump wins, reporters' sense of it is that Cohen really wanted to go to Washington and expected to go to Washington. He wanted to be chief of staff. He wanted to be White House counsel. Chief of staff. Yeah. And it never happened because 
the political people just said, you can't have this guy, no, you can't have this guy around. He's, he's, you know, he threatens journalists and you can't have somebody doing that, you know, in the White House. And so Donald Trump went off to Washington and Michael Cohen stayed in New York. The Wall Street Journal quoted Cohen calling up Trump on the phone and saying, I miss you, boss. You know, I talked to Sam Nunberg, who worked on the Trump campaign, and he said that it was a tactical mistake by the president not to give Michael Cohen some job in the White House, maybe even twiddling his thumbs, as Nunberg put it, because he sort of assured that Cohen could betray him. And Cohen did betray him, ultimately. He was loyal to Trump in the sense that he carried out Trump's orders. But I think that he also had another agenda at the same time, which was the aggrandizement of himself. If Trump used him, he was using Trump. And he had specific things he wanted to get from that relationship that he was pursuing. So this idea that he's this selfless loyalist who would do anything for his boss is a little, you know, I I have issues with that based on my reporting. Paul Schwartzman is a reporter for The Post. Last Friday, roughly 700 anti-vaccination activists gathered at the Washington state capitol. They were there to protest a bill that would make it harder to opt out of vaccinations. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of the truth. And this bill is being pushed through the state legislature at the same time that Clark County, Washington, is experiencing a massive measles outbreak. Nearly 60 cases have been reported. And public health officials say that part of why that's happening is because of parents who've opted their children out of the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccinations. Measles is one of the most contagious diseases on Earth, period, full stop. Lena Sun is a health reporter for The Post. She says that measles is uniquely problematic because of what health officials describe as its exquisite contagiousness. If somebody has measles and walks through the CVS and you have not been vaccinated and then you go into that same CVS like in that two hours that the person has walked through, you have a 90% chance of getting infected with measles. 90%? 90%. The virus is tiny and it is suspended in the air for a long time and it lives on surfaces. That's why in this current measles outbreak or in any measles outbreak, one of the first things that you'll see is the public health officials will list all the places of potential exposure sites. So in the Washington state measles outbreak, I believe they have listed over three dozen, including the airport, a Portland Trailblazers game, Costco, oh my Walmart, schools, malls, you name it. I can't imagine how many people have gone through all those public places, places. With, with a huge amount of people there. Right. And so that's why for the response for public health, they have to track down all of the people who could have been exposed. When I covered the Minnesota measles outbreak two years ago, more than 8,000 people in total, I think, were tracked down. In the end, they had 75 confirmed cases of measles. 20% of those people were hospitalized. Many of them, of course, were children. So what happens when you contract measles? Most people get a mild illness, and the symptoms are very similar to a cold. 
and then the characteristic red rash shows up. But here's the thing. You are infectious four days before the symptoms and four days afterwards. So you could be walking around infected with this really, really contagious disease and not know that you're sick and infect other people. And for some other people, it's not just a cold-like set of symptoms. Measles can be deadly and it can be fatal in small children. You can get pneumonia. You can get encephalitis, which is swelling of the brain. About one to two people in 1,000 will die. Oh, my gosh. So for the people in Clark County, Washington, at the epicenter of this outbreak, how is this affecting their day-to-day lives? People we have talked to have complained about not being able to go out. The people who are most vulnerable in any kind of these disease outbreaks, particularly in measles, are young kids who cannot get vaccinated, pregnant women, and people who are immune compromised. We have spoken to parents who have been forced to stay home because they don't want to expose their babies or young children to somebody else's germs. And that has meant changing their daily routine quite a bit. Representative Paul Harris, who has sponsored a bill to close this particular exemption, allowing parents to opt out of vaccination, says that he's gotten so many calls from constituents who can't go to public places because they're worried about catching measles. We are concerned about the choice of freedom, freedom of choice for all children, for children who have suppressed immune compromised, who really can't be immunized, who are, who are locked up in their homes right now. Lots of them. We have people who are concerned that they can't come out into public who have very small children. Why is this affecting the Pacific Northwest in particular? For some years now, anti-vaccine activists have been becoming more organized. And in the Pacific Northwest, the sentiment there is particularly strong. And people there embrace this idea of libertarian freedom of parental rights and choice. And that sentiment is very strong in Washington state, in Oregon. In fact, parts of Washington have some of the lowest immunization rates in the country. And also the laws there allow a lot of people to just not vaccinate their children, right? So Each one of the 50 states allows parents to opt out their school-age children from vaccinations for medical reasons. Many states also allow them to opt their children out for religious reasons. 17 states, including Washington, Idaho, and Oregon, allow parents to opt their children out for personal or philosophical reasons. But now in Washington, they are trying to close that loophole for measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines. So these folks who are anti-vaccine, what do they say about this outbreak? They say the same things that they have always been saying. The anti-vaccine core activists believe in a conspiracy that the government, the pharmaceutical industry, mainstream media are all conspiring to make people give vaccines that are not safe. And they claim that people have, their children have been injured by vaccines. And their message resonates with parents who are often just hesitant and not sure what to do. 
So then these parents go online. And when you look for stuff online, often the information, the false information that is spread by the anti-vaccine activists is what comes up first. And it's often cloaked in very scientific sounding language. People don't know what it means. It sounds very official and professional. And then they persuade these people. And when you hesitate, that means you're not vaccinating your child. Or if you delay, you're not vaccinating. So then that affects the level of immunization in the broader community and is unable to protect the people who cannot get vaccinated. But for these parents who aren't vaccinating their children, aren't they also scared about this measles outbreak and the fact that potentially they could have little kids who die because they've contracted measles? A lot of them do not believe that measles is a dangerous disease. After the Minnesota outbreak, there were discussions of parents who were trying to hold measles parties so they could deliberately get their kids infected with measles so the kids would have immunity to measles for life. So once you have it, you do have immunity for life. So they believed... It yes. seems like trying to get it doesn't doesn't seem like the, the safest way to go about getting immunity. I think part of this has to do with the vaccine itself. It was developed in the 1960s, and in the United States, measles was eradicated in 2000. So if you talk to doctors, unless they're older, they haven't seen a case of measles because the vaccine worked. 75% of infectious disease doctors have never seen a case of measles. Wow. So it's not the first thing you would think of if somebody comes in presenting with those symptoms, right? Runny nose, sore throat, fever. Right now we're in flu season. Also, to make things worse, this is a virus that typically has a higher transmission during the late winter, early spring. Hmm. It feels like this outbreak provide some definitive and and kind of visceral proof of the ill effects of not vaccinating your children, do you anticipate that this will cause a change either in state legislatures trying to add more restrictions to people so that they have to vaccinate their children or like a shift in public perception that you don't have so many people thinking, well, you know, maybe it's just better if I don't vaccinate my kid. They have already seen in Washington state an enormous surge in the uptake of vaccine. And that's sort of typical because people realize, hey, you know what? Uh, Maybe I should get vaccinated. And I think the lawmakers in Washington state are hoping that this will give them the political oomph to take this across the finish line. As for changing the minds of People, I think part of the issue is if you're a parent and you believe in vaccines and you get your kids vaccinated, it is no big deal. You don't go around talking about it. It's not the passion of your life. But for some of these other anti-vaccine people, it is the passion of their life. So their voices are stronger. They're more emotional. And they tend to dominate social media. And then you have the parents who are in the middle. They just don't know what to do. And I think... Telling them that science shows this, that this is the right thing to do, may make them feel like they're not getting listened to. Because if they have a child that has a problem of some sort and they don't know what's causing it, it's really hard to refute a negative. So 
I think there are some social scientists who say that the way to approach parents is not by saying, this is science, you must believe it, is to sort of figure out where they are on morally or whatever and meet them that way. Lena's son covers health and infectious disease for The Post. Last week, a report by the World Health Organization listed vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 global threats of 2019. And now, one more thing. The so-called leftover women of China. So this idea of leftover women applies basically to women about 30 and over. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Post. She says that around Lunar New Year each winter, when many people in China head home to their families, millions of women are pressured to get married. But often, they can't. That's because their high income, their high-powered careers, and their age make them undesirable to many men. Basically, anyone who hasn't got married by the age of 25 is suddenly going to get lots of pressure from their families to hurry up, hurry up. And if you're not married by the end of your 20s, yeah, you're considered past your prime, left over, you know, no one's going to want to marry you. Anna says that parents will even go so far as to post flyers advertising their daughters. And yet, they don't do the same for men, who outnumber women by the tens of millions, but are held to a different social standard than women. As a result of the one-child policy, there are now 33 million more men, adults, than women because there is a strong preference towards boys because boys are the ones who look after their parents in their old age where the woman marries out of the family and goes and looks after somebody else's parents. And that has led to all sorts of problems within Chinese society. The effects of that are being felt now because there just aren't enough babies being born. Now, the Chinese government is trying to encourage young, career-driven women to date. Businesses are also stepping in to help make romance happen. Anna says that some companies are going so far as to give women time off to go on dates. It's called dating leave or love leave at some companies. Just a few companies, but young, 20-something, 30-something women who are not married are entitled to an extra eight days off. And women employees who get married by the end of this year will get double their annual bonus as a reward. Because nothing sparks romance like a company-mandated relationship. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Post. That's it for today's show. We want to hear what you think about the podcast, so we're asking all our listeners to head over to postreports.com slash survey to complete a quick questionnaire about our show. You can enter to win one of five $100 Amazon gift cards. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.